Good morning, everyone. Man, it has been an incredible day so far at Journey. It's been an incredible month at Journey. I cannot wait for what's coming in the future. Listen, each week, more and more, peop- more, and more of our people are returning from kind of their, their COVID isolation. Last week, we had our highest percentage of people since we shut down about a year ago. 68% of our church of what we averaged last year was actually back, which, uh, which across the nation is extremely high. But that means a third of our church family is still not in church. So for those of you who might be watching online, we love you. We miss you. We are going to have room for you. Just three weeks ago, we started an off-site service at Summit Christian Academy. We thought that would get us through Easter. Today, they had to set chairs all the way to the back of the room. Our 930 and our 11 are filling up again. So on Palm Sunday, one month from today, we are going to start a fifth service over at Summit Christian Academy. The, the times will be at 930 and 11. And we're going to ask some of you to go to church, especially if you live on the north side of town. We're going to ask some of you to go to church at Summit Christian Academy at 11 instead of here because we have hundreds and hundreds of people in our church who call our church home, and they're going to be coming back around Easter as spring turns to summer, and we just don't have anywhere for them. So if you would be willing to be a missionary, think about, pray about going to Summit Christian Academy. We'll give you an opportunity to sign up for that in the next few weeks. And listen, you see it every week when you drive up. It's going to be just a couple months, and then we'll all be back together um, in our new auditorium, which is going to be awesome. But man, I'm so excited for what is happening and what is going on at Journey. Before we dig in today, Pastor Vance Pittman, it is so good to have you here today. Ten years ago, um, Danielle and I started on a journey with a few dozen friends to start a church, and there was a church planning network based in Atlanta called the Launch Network that was a small number of churches that gave time, money, resources, and training to say, we believe in church planning. Let's find some young church planners across America and help them. Uh, One of the board members of the Launch Network was Vance Pittman, Vance Pastors, um, Hope Church in Las Vegas. I think you turned 20 this year, right? So when they were our age, they took offerings like we do, and they talked about church planning. We are, we are one of those churches um, that we are hoping to plant. Um, Vance, would you stand up for just a minute just so we can say hi? Would you all help me say thank you to Vance and to Hope Church? You guys have met Pastor Brian Beloy. He's, he's been here a bunch speaking, kind of my, my church father um, of church planning. But it took churches like Hope Church in Las Vegas saying, we, we, be, we believe in the future vision um, of your church. Your son-in-law, Christian, is now on our team as our church planning resident. Your daughter, Hannah, has been leading worship um, a little bit. And uh, it's an honor to have you here. And I, I just want to honor you and say thank you. Um, I don't think 10 years ago we'd had the courage to do it if it wasn't people like you saying, we'll help you. It's going to be, it's going to be all right. And it's going to be great. You saw this way before we did. So thank you. Um, and, and we're going to keep paying it forward. We're going to keep planting more and more and more and more um, and more. We're in week four of a series called Chasing Perfection. We'll start, stop crying and start preaching. Um, here's, here's, the, here's, here's the reason we're in this series, and here's why it's called that. We are in our 14th message in Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. Grab your notes. Fire up your app so that you can take notes. We are going to end this chapter with this statement from Jesus in Matthew 5, 48. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. And for those of us who know anything about our heavenly Father, we're going to look at that statement of Jesus and say, Jesus, that is impossible. 
And that is the whole point. That is the premise of this series. We want to learn how much we have to depend on Jesus to be like Jesus. Jesus says, if you want to be connected to God and have the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through you, all you got to do is be as perfect as me. And we say, Jesus, that's impossible. And he would say, without my help, without my substitution, without me in my, in your place, without my spirit, you're right. But with me. You can do it. You can lean in. You can step in. So we are pursuing, trying to figure out how to be more like Jesus. Everyone say Jesus. Jesus. That's the goal of this series, to help us see Jesus and see our need to be more like Jesus. I think today's message is one of the higher need areas for where we need Jesus. Let me give you the two goals of today's message as we dig in. Number one, to see the ugly truth about our hearts. We're going to look in Matthew chapter 5 and we're going to see some ugly truth about our hearts. Turn to someone sitting near you and say lust. Yeah, you said that quieter than Jesus because that's a four-letter word you don't say much in church. As a matter of fact, we, that, that's probably not a word that any of us have used yet this week. Um, I serve with a group of pastors on an advisory board at Liberty University and the dean of the school of religion um, has, has an, an assistant, a secretary whose name is Elizabeth, Elizabeth Lust. And she sent me an email a few weeks ago, and I saw that I had an email from Lust, and I thought, I should probably not open that. That, that is that's junk mail, that's spam, that realized, that's a real person. And when I wrote an email back, I put Miss Lust, and I thought, I don't think I can say that. So I said, we're not close, but you are Elizabeth to me, because just that's a, it's a word, it's a concept, it's a thing it's a, that's a little weird, but Jesus says it lives in kind of an ugly spot in our hearts. We're going to talk about lust a little bit today, and we're not going to get stuck on our ugly hearts. We're going to end, hopefully, seeing the beautiful love of Jesus. So we're going we're to see the ugly side of our heart, but we're, we're going to see how Jesus offers to redeem that. Man, we're going to learn that we need Jesus today in a powerful way. And I think if you've never really understood the greatness of Jesus' love, today may give you an opportunity to do that. Before we ever jump into Scripture, we always ask God to just kind of calm our hearts and open our hearts. So would you bow your heads with me here? And those of you watching online, take a deep breath if you haven't done that yet this service. And I'm going to add a piece to this prayer today. Would you start by asking God to forgive you for any area you've fallen short in this week? Would you just come clean with God and and ask him to help your heart get clean today? And then would you ask him to speak to your heart and tell him you're listening? Simple prayer. Speak, Lord. I'm listening. God, we need you to clean our hearts up because we're broken people living in a broken world. And we want you to speak to us. We need, we need your guidance. We need your direction. If it's possible today to allow us to see deep enough inside our hearts to see our desperate need for you, then let that happen as we study your word together. That's our prayer. And Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name and everyone said, amen. Amen. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 32 for the next month. The primary purpose of Matthew 5, verses 27 through 32 is to teach us about our relationship with God. It's to teach us how we need Jesus to connect to God. But Jesus uses the metaphor of marriage to teach us some spiritual truth. So we're in this series called Chasing Perfection, but we're going to focus the next four weeks on an area that we're just calling Jesus and marriage. We're going to focus on Jesus and marriage because while this series is about us and our relationship to God, because Jesus 
uses marriage to teach us some lessons. It's a real good time to stop and learn about marriage while we're learning about Jesus. So the next few weeks, we'll be learning about Jesus through Matthew chapter 5. We'll start in verse 27 today through 32. We'll be in these exact same verses every Sunday for a month. Here's what it says. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. It's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality makes her a victim of adultery. And anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery so much to learn over the next month at Journey. I heard a pastor say this week, if you live in a culture where lust is high and divorce is easy, marriage is in trouble. And I don't know if you've looked around lately, but we live in a culture where lust is high and divorce is easy and marriage is in trouble. As a matter of fact, you would say marriage is a failing institution in the world that we live in because more marriages end in divorce than actually make it statistically in the world that we live in, which means I could end every wedding that I do by saying, I now pronounce you husband and wife, chances are you'll fail, and that would be a statistic truth. More fail than make it. Last year, for the first time in American history, more babies were born to women under the age of 30 who were not married than who were married. Family and marriage is going away. Because we live in a culture where lust is high and divorce is easy, which means we live in a culture where marriage is in trouble. So as we learn about our relationship with Jesus, we're going to talk a little bit about the danger of lust today. We're going to talk next week about the power of losing. How do you lose some things so you can have a better marriage? We're going to talk in three weeks about a man named Hosea. We're going to see a beautiful picture of of a difficult marriage and the love within that marriage. And, and then we'll come at the very end and we'll learn to love like Jesus. Um, you say, I'm not married. This series doesn't have anything for me. Sure it does, because it's mostly about you and Jesus. But if you are married, I think this could be a strong four weeks for you. If you are married and you are considering backing out of marriage, wait four weeks. If you're engaged, don't get married for the next month. If you're thinking about getting married, this series is going to be good for you. If you know someone who's married and you want to help them, the next four weeks is going to be really critical to you. And if you really want to dig into marriage, um, one of my favorite books on marriage that I read last year by one of my favorite authors is called Loveology by John Mark Comer. He's one of my favorite authors. Such a great, great read. I put in your bulletin this little card so you know the name of this book, the name of the author, and the place to order. So those of you who are readers, who are like, do a little more students, this is a tremendous resource. Read this this month as we learn together through Matthew 5. Um, Loveology, God, love, marriage, sex, and the never-ending story of male and female. A phenomenal book on marriage in the 21st century. So we're going to learn all those things, but today we're just going to start with the first two verses, Matthew chapter 5, verses 20. 27 and 28. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We're going to look at these two words. If you have your Bibles, underline or circle these two words. We're going to look at adultery and we're going to look at the word already. And we're going to learn some interesting things about our heart. And then we're going to turn and look at Jesus. So we're going to look through the lens of an ugly heart and a beautiful Savior, but we're starting with these two verses. Let's start with our ugly heart. What are we going to learn about our ugly heart? Jesus said, you have heard that it was written, do not commit adultery. 
Now, just so we make sure we're on the same page with Jesus, let me give you the biblical definition of adultery. Adultery is sexual intercourse with someone who's not your spouse if you're married or with someone who is the spouse of another person if you're single. Adultery is violating the covenant and the promise of marriage, yours or someone else's. Adultery, sexual intercourse with someone who's not your spouse if you're married or with someone who is the spouse of another person if you are single. That's what adultery is. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said, don't, don't do that. In Leviticus chapter 18, we actually find 20 different types of sexual immorality that God tells his people, don't do that. Um, we learn about fornication, two single people having sex with each other before they're married. Jesus is like, yeah, don't do that. Um, homosexuality, two people of the same sex being sexually intimate with each other. God says, no, don't, don't do that. Um, we learn about sexual abuse, somebody having sex with someone who's unwilling. Jesus says, don't do that. Um, we learn about incest. Um, God says, don't have sex with your relatives. We learn about bestiality, don't have sex with animals. There are 15 more I can tell you want me to stop, so I will. It's like, dear God, Christian, there's children in the room. Like, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just teaching the Bible. Um, of the 20 in Leviticus chapter 18, only one makes the varsity. Of the 20 in Leviticus 18, only one got put on the big list. And it's this one. God said, in my list of 10 commandments, I get to talk about kind of one thing sexually. Here's, here's the one for my people right here. Don't do this. Don't commit adultery. And it's interesting how God describes adultery. In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 23, God calls adultery outrageous. It's the Hebrew word nevala. It's only found 13 times in the entire Old Testament. It's behavior lacking moral principle or any recognition of a proper obligation. It's because adultery is not just a personal sin. Adultery is a community sin. See, adultery is a personal sin when you step outside of your marriage, but adultery is a community sin when you step into somebody else's marriage. See, the, the, the principle of adultery is I've made a promise to someone, and I'm not going to break that promise, but the obligation of the entire community is to say they have promised to one another, stay out of their lives. So adultery is not just a personal sin, it's a community sin because it's, it's an individual who says I'm not going to honor my commitment and it is a community that says, I really don't even care about the covenant of marriage. So God says adultery is outrageous. And he used this to talk about how he felt he was being treated when his people walked away from him. In Jeremiah chapter 3, one of the primary pictures of the people of God violating their covenant of promise to God is adultery. God says, when I think about what it feels like when you make a promise to me and then you walk away... God says, here's what it feels like. Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, I gave faithless Israel her certificate of divorce and sent her away because of all of her adulteries. Yet I saw that her unfaithful sister Judah had no fear. She also went out and committed adultery. Because Israel's immorality mattered so little to her, she defiled the land and committed adultery with stone and wood. You say, what does that mean? God said, they promised that they would be in a love relationship with me, but then they worshiped and they served other idols and other gods. They stepped outside a strong covenant promise that we made and it felt like they committed adultery on me. So Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, don't do that. Don't commit adultery. But then Jesus said, I'm going to raise the bar. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But I'm going to raise the bar because I'm going to talk about the attitude behind the action. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery. But here's what I'm going to say. Anyone who looks at a woman lustfully 
has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Turn to someone and say already. This, I think, is the most powerful point of this message, so I'm going to jump right to it, all right? What do we learn from this word already? Jesus is saying, because your heart has decided to commit adultery, your eyes are lusting. When you look at how this sentence is shaped in the Greek language, basically what Jesus is saying is, by the time your eyes have made contact to lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart, and as a matter of fact, the only reason your eyes are lusting is because your heart wants to commit adultery. If we could say it another way, we could kind of flip it. The heart causes the eyes to lust, not vice versa. You say, why is lust so high in our culture today? Because so many hearts are broken in our culture today. There are too many men in the church who say, why is lust so high in the why is lust so high in the culture today? And they would say, well, look at the way girls dress. And Jesus would say, no, look at the way your heart tells your eyes to see. Because adultery and lust is a sin of the heart and not a sin of the eyes. Jesus would say very clearly in Matthew chapter 15, it's the heart. Out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. So Jesus says, before your eyes have seen, your heart has already committed adultery. And the only reason your eyes are looking for adultery is because it's what's in your heart. Your heart is broken. The main point of this passage is your heart is broken. The main point of all of chapter 5 is your heart is broken and nobody can fix it but Jesus. It's the whole point of Matthew chapter 5. We thought we could kind of earn our way into God's favor, but when we see the standards, we need a Savior because our hearts are broken. Murder is really about anger, and I need Jesus to help me with anger. Adultery really is about lust, and I need God to help me with lust. Divorce is really about needing Jesus' help to stay faithful when things get hard. Breaking promises is really about not having enough integrity, and you need Jesus' help for that. Not retaliating when someone hurts you as much more more about trusting God to use it and at the end of time to punish it if necessary in a person rather than on the cross. Learning how to interact with and pray for our enemies means we have to become like Jesus. Like when we look at Jesus' standards, we realize if our heart has to be like his, our hearts are broken. And our hearts have been broken for a long, long time. Because our very first grandparents, Adam and Eve, way back at the beginning, had broken hearts and they passed it on to us. If we, read it, if we read the first two or three chapters of our Bible in Genesis 1, 2, and 3, we'd read about a God who created the world and everything in it, the heavens and the earth, and he created humanity, Adam and Eve, and he put them in a garden and he said, take care of this, and he gave them everything they needed to be happy, everything they needed to be satisfied, everything they needed to have peace and joy, everything they needed to be totally fulfilled. And he also gave them the opportunity to show him that they trusted him. But that opportunity could become an obstacle in their walk with God if they did not trust him. And you know the story, they did not trust him. And when God said, here's how I want you to do life, it'll keep you most fulfilled, they said, yeah, but here's how we'd like to live life. We think this would actually make us more fulfilled. And one tree led to one temptation, and one temptation led to one sin, and one sin led to a moment of shame, for a moment, and a little bit of hiddenness. And then they figured out, we're shamed and we're broken, but we can, kind of, we can kind of cover this up and then we'll be okay. And for those of you who know the story, what did they get to cover themselves up? They got a fig leaf. 
And they said, we violated what God asked us to do. And we felt really bad about that for a minute. So we knew we'd have to cover that up. So we figured out a way to cover up ourselves. And when God says, come out of hiding, let's talk. They kind of present themselves to God like, here we are. Like, we know you told us how to live life. But we've kind of made the decision to live life this way instead. And I think, like, I think we're good now. Is this, is this, is this okay? And God's like, no, it's not. It's not Okay. Because at the heart of your choice, the heart of your choice was a heart that said, you didn't trust me to know what was best for you. At, at, the, at the heart of your choice was a heart that said, I know what God has provided for me. I think I would just like something more. I think I would just like something different. See, when we look at the, the thought of lust, behind the heart of lust is this phrase, I just want more than I've been given. Like, I know God's given me so much, but could I just ha- have a little more? And once Adam and Eve came to grips with comfort in fig leaf faith, I mean, for a minute they were pretty ashamed and they were like, holy cow, you're broken and I'm broken and we're both naked. But they're like, we can figure this out. We can fix this ourselves. So they sew on their fig leaves, they present themselves to God and then things get crazy because they start kind of arguing with God. God's like, what did you do? And they're like, well, we chose to do things our way instead of yours, but we think we're okay. We think we fixed it. And then Eve speaks up and it's like, oh, Eve, stop. God's like, what'd you do? And he's like, well, here's what we did. But you put the dang snake in the garden. Oh, Eve, don't say that. Don't blame God for your choice. You see how we do this? God, why would you put a tree in the garden you didn't want us to eat from? Why would you produce a fruit that looks good and tastes good if we're not supposed to have it? Technically, this is, God, this is on you. And we can go on and on. God, why would you create a day of the week where we're supposed to rest if really we can get everything done in six? Like, you just trying to kill us, God? Why would you give me 10% extra in every paycheck I've ever received? Just give me 90. Like, you trying, trying to cause me to fail? When the Israelites started eating man and Moses told him to collect it for six days and on the seventh day, don't collect any. And then on the seventh day, it fell. You would say, God... Why would you let there even be man on the seventh day if you didn't want us to collect it? You know how this works sexually, right? God, why would you allow my sex drive to start at 13, 12, 11 if I can't get married to 20? This is on you. God, why would you allow me to be attracted to the same sex if I was not supposed to pursue that kind of, this is on you. God, why would there be more than one woman or man that I had ever met if I was only supposed to be married one? Like you see how foolish this argument gets, right? When you begin to say, God, this is kind of on you, but that's what Adam and Eve did. They showed up with their fig leaf and said, we've kind of figured out how we wanted to do this. And honestly, we kind of blame you for making it as difficult as as it has been. Fig leaf faith. The questions, I think, are fair. God, why would you put a tree in the garden you didn't want us to eat? It's a fair question. Why fruit that we're not supposed to have? It's a fair question. Why a Sabbath? Why a seventh day if we don't need it? Fair question. Why an extra 10%? It's a good question. Why sexual drive, energy, passion in areas that we're not supposed to express? All really, really good questions. You say, God's doing it because he's trying to tempt me. He's trying to ruin me. No, 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 no. That's not how God works. But God does allow. Um, God sometimes controls. I think sometimes God forces, tests into our life to say, I'm allowing this to see if you'll surrender what you think is right to what I say is right. 
Because if you will not surrender, you will not have trust. And if there is no trust, there can be no intimacy. And what I want more than anything is to have an intimate relationship with you. But if you are not willing to trust me in the things you don't understand. You see, what did you hear what I said about the tree? He gave them an opportunity to learn how to trust them. That became an obstacle. Because their heart said, I want things my way. I want to live the way that I live. God says, I put things in your life. I allow things in your life. I work things in your life so you can have moments of surrender, so you can have a depth of trust, so you can have a level of intimacy that you need to walk with me and know me personally. The great theologian John Calvin put it this way. He said, following Jesus means that however difficult, arduous, troublesome, or painful God's rule may be, we must make no excuse for that as the righteousness of God should be worth more to us than all the other things which are chiefly dear and precious. There's a lot of things I want, but God has said to live this way, so I surrender because if I surrender, I can trust. If I trust, I can have intimacy. If I have intimacy, I can walk with God. So someone approached me two weeks ago after our winter oneness, kind of racial oneness Sunday, and asked me a fair question. Pastor Christian, ultimately isn't racism God's fault? Because in Genesis chapter 11, he created the Tower of Babel. He created kind of all the races. So could we say that kind of racism came from God? And that's a fair question. Fair question, but the biblical perspective on that would be James chapter 1, which says, no, because racism is evil and racism is sin, it could not have come from God. Races came from God, but racism could not have come from God because when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So the creation of races probably certainly led to some things that people of every race have to surrender in order to trust, so they can have some intimacy with God. But no, the heart of sin is the one in here. And when when the lust, when the desire to know how God wants it done and to do it your own way kicks in, that desire gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown in marriage, it, it kills your marriage. It kills your family. It kills a culture. When divorce is high, when lust is high and divorce is easy, marriage is in trouble, that's our culture. Because our hearts are broken. And because our hearts are broken, Jesus says, your eyes are lusting. Now, let's define what lust is so that we can kind of move to the next point of looking at Jesus. When we look at this phrase, Jesus said, anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, this phrase in the Greek language that I've written up there for you is a phrase with a present participle, and it's a phrase in the infinitive case. You say, what does that mean? I have no idea, but here's what I read. Um, A present participle in the Greek language, means that it's a continuous action. So Jesus is saying whoever looks and looks and looks and looks and looks, whoever continually is looking for lust. Not someone who catches someone and says, hey, she's pretty. No, whoever, because of their heart, is constantly looking for lust to fill their heart. That person is going to give birth to sin that's going to give birth to death. So it's a continuous action, but it's also in the infinitive. You say, what does that mean? It means there's an intent to act. Everyone who looks lustfully, anyone who over and over and over and over and over again is looking because their heart wants to act. That person is going to give birth to sin and sin is going to give birth to death and their marriage and their family and their culture is going to be so, so broken. Their hearts are broken because they know Jesus. We have people in our church whose hearts are broken in this area. And it's because we live in a world where 
This is it. Jesus had a disciple, a friend named Peter, who wrote two letters, First Peter and Second Peter, that we have in the kind of the back half of our Bible. And in Second Peter, he wrote a whole chapter about what to get ready for when the end of the world was coming. He kind of said, this is what it will look like when the end of the world is coming. Here's, here's some things that will let you know the end of the world is coming. Here's how he described the people in the end of the world. They'll have eyes full of adultery who never stop sinning. They'll seduce the unstable. They'll be experts in greed. They're an accursed brood. This literally, this phrase, eyes full of adultery, it literally, it, it's, a, it's a group of people, it's a culture of people who can't stop watching other people have sex who aren't their spouse. Boy, I'm glad that's not America. No one's saying that right now, right? Might be the end for us if it's not the end for everyone. Here's what the end will look like. Be filled with a culture of people who spend their whole life watching people who have sex who are not their spouse. They can't stop sinning. It's because they're experts in greed. Their heart wants what their heart wants. And their heart has trained their eyes to go get it. That's what lust is. Peter would continue and he said, here's what happened to them. They left the straight way. And they wandered off to follow the way of Balaam, son of Bezer, who loved the wages of wickedness. You say, who is Balaam? What did he do? Balaam was a prophet of God who was hired by the king of Moab, modern-day Jordan, to curse Israel before they moved in the land. Because he had some kind of authentic connection with God, he told God, can I curse these people? And God said, no, you can't curse these people. They're my people. If you curse them, I'll curse you. So he went and told the king of Moab, I can't curse them. However, if you will tempt them sexually, they'll curse themselves. God said I couldn't curse him or he'd kill me. So I can't do that for you, but I can give you an idea. Tempt them sexually, they'll curse themselves, and basically you'll have what you want anyway. And he did, and in a day more than 10,000 died. Peter said in the end, there'll be people Satan would like to curse, but he can't. But by training their hearts to be full of sexual greed, he'll send something that they curse themselves with. And it's an ugly heart. It's a selfish heart. It's a broken heart. Fig leaf faith, if you could just sum it up, is, is this. It's like, it's all about me. Adam and Eve, here's how I want you to live your life. Yeah, okay. Here's how, thanks but no thanks. It's all about me. Fig leaf faith is, it's all about me. God, I know your standards, but I think I'm okay. I'm being kind of broken and figuring out on my own. It's all about me. An ugly heart, a selfish heart, a broken heart. Next week, as we continue to drop down in Matthew 5, we'll actually talk about what do I, if that's my heart, what do I do? How do I begin to break the chains of bondage in that area? We'll talk about it next week. We're going to end today by talking about Jesus. We're going to talk about our beautiful Savior. We, we see the ugly side of the heart that we know is the world we live in. But then we see a picture of a beautiful Savior in this area. Fig leaf faith is it's all about me. Listen to Jesus' faith. It's all about them. Figly faith says it's all about me and what I think I need, what I want, what my heart tells my eyes to go get. Jesus' faith is it's all about them. And Philippians chapter 2, the apostle Paul, who started churches all over the Mediterranean world 2,000 years ago, is writing to a group of his friends, a Bible study had started to become a church. And he said, y'all need to be more like Jesus. You need to be more like Jesus. Like when you think about how to interact with each other, y'all just need to be more like Jesus. And in Philippians chapter 2, he said, in your relationships with each other, have the same mindset as Jesus who being in the very nature of God didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his advantage. He says, stop looking at every relationship trying to figure out how it advantages you. Y'all need to be more like Jesus. Stop looking at every person in the world trying to figure out what you can get from them. Y'all need to be more like Jesus. 
who made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross, which, by the way, if you read the story of Jesus carefully, he asked God if he could not do this. Like Adam and Eve wanted to eat the tree but didn't ask God, we really want to, can we? And he said, no. Jesus said, I'd really rather not die on a tree. Is that possible? And God said, no. And he said, whatever you want. I surrender because I trust and I want intimacy with you. Fig leaf faith says, it's all about me. Jesus says, it's all about them, whatever they need. In a culture where lust is high and divorce is easy, and marriage is in trouble unless, listen, unless that marriage looks like Jesus. And then you not only are not in trouble, you are the picture of what God wants to show to our world. What we're going to learn in Ephesians chapter 5 is when life and marriage flow from the heart of Jesus, when life and marriage trust the plan and provision of God, they become a primary picture of the gospel in society. People say, tell me what it looks like to be loved by Jesus. You could say, hey, you know this couple who have this great marriage? That's what it looks like to be loved by Jesus. Husbands and wife could ask this question, hey, how could I be a better husband or a better wife? And you could point them to the gospel and say, you know the way Jesus loves people? That's the way to be a great husband or a great wife. When we look at Ephesians chapter 5, we find out that marriage in the gospel, when, when marriage is healthy, it's the best picture of the gospel we can find. Ephesians chapter 5, let's read through a few verses together, and then I'll give you a, a list of things to maybe even grade your marriage on. Paul says to the church at Ephesus, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to yourselves as to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. For those of wives saying, I ain't going to submit. Listen, the choices are submit or die. Like, wife gets submit, husband dies, and it's like, okay, if I submit, he dies? Okay, I'll do that. Um, like, like, those are the options. So submit is the good one. Um, so, so he gives himself for his wife to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless in the same way husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their own body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. You say, I want to know, I want to know how Jesus loves people. Find a great marriage. It looks like that. You say, I want to have a great marriage. Learn the intricacies of the gospel. It looks like that. But it all can be summed up in the love of Jesus. It's all about them. A picture of marriage in the gospel is it's all about them. Let me throw the list up and we'll talk about them one at a time. What do we learn from Ephesians chapter 5 about how Jesus loves us and how we should love our spouse? What's a picture, a healthy picture of a gospel-centered marriage look like? It's two people who have found someone that they're willing to submit to for the rest of their lives. It's two people who have found somebody that they want to love by serving each other the rest of their life. It's two people who have found somebody that they think they can make better spiritually by being in their lives. It's two people who have found somebody that they're willing to sacrifice their personal freedoms for. It's two people who have found somebody they're willing to share the heartbeat of their life with. If you're in the room today or you're watching online and you say, Christian, honestly, be honest, man, what does Jesus think about me? This. This is what Jesus did for you. You say, why would Jesus step out of heaven, be born in a manger, and eventually go to a cross and die? Why would he do that? Because he found in you someone he was willing to submit 
his life too. See, why would Jesus come to earth and go through all of that? Because in you, he found someone he wanted to love by serving you with his entire life. You say, yeah, but why would Jesus give up all the royalties of heaven? Because in you, he found somebody that he knew he could make alive spiritually by coming alongside you. Yeah, Christian, are you sure? Yeah, Jesus is somebody. Because of you, he came to sacrifice his freedom so that you could have life. In you, Jesus found somebody he was willing to share his Holy Spirit heartbeat with so one day you can live eternally with God. You say, how does Jesus think of me? He thinks of you this way. This is how Jesus loves you. You say, I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better wife. Listen to me. If you have a spouse that loves you this way, you've hit the jackpot. Congratulations. We're all jealous of you and we wish we were more like you. If you are a spouse who loves this way, then we're praying for you because this is hard. It's hard every moment of every day to submit, to serve, to always be focused on helping somebody become better spiritually, to sacrifice, to share. But you say, yep, that's the way I love my husband. That's the way I love my wife. God bless you. If you're married to that person, jackpot. If your parents are this person, jackpot. If you happen to have one friend like this, jackpot. If you work at a company where your boss treats their employees like this, jackpot. You have hit the Jesus jackpot when you find yourself connected to someone in life who will love you like this. And here's what you need to know. If you say, no one could love me like that, Jesus has and he will. If you will open up your heart to receive him as your leader and as your savior and to surrender all of the things you don't understand about his plan for you, you surrender those so you can learn to trust, so that you can have intimacy. Jesus loves you. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus personally, this is who he'd like to be in your life. All you got to do is open your heart and receive him and surrender to his love, trusting that as he comes alongside you, you'll be okay. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus who maybe has been shamed by the guilt of your past and you think, I just don't think Jesus can see me like this. Paul says he does. Scripture says he does. And if you're a follower of Jesus who's having a hard time surrendering something because you think it's just not fair and, you know, just like, why would God put that there if I wasn't supposed to do it? Learn surrender. It's the only way you'll learn trust. And you can't have intimacy until you have trust. Fig leaf faith. God, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to do it my way. It's all about me. I'll fix my brokenness. And hopefully you'll accept me. It doesn't work. Jesus' faith says, God, I am broken beyond a leaf fixing me. A fig leaf will not fix my heart. A fig leaf will not fix my eyes. A fig leaf will not fix my mind and how it thinks. A fig leaf will, will not fix the things going on in my soul. A fig leaf will not heal the hurt of my past. A fig leaf will not direct my future. I need Jesus. If you're here today and you don't know him, here's what he would like to offer you. If you're one of his, but Satan has made you forget, remember and lean in. And if you are a husband or you are a wife, here's your challenge. Love like Jesus. 
Because if you do, a world who's asking the question, what does it look like to be loved by Jesus? Can be answered with the way he loves his wife. The way she loves her husband. That's what it looks like to be in a relationship with Jesus. In our world, our culture needs a relationship with Jesus. Would you pray with me this morning? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed all over the room and those who are watching online. If you're here today, you need to know that a fig leaf cannot cover your sin and heal your heart, but Jesus can. If you've never met Jesus, if you don't know him personally, if you've not turned your life over to him, what you need to hear today is that he knows you and he loves you. He sees your life and he's not looking at your actions to figure out whether or not you're good enough for God. He's looking at your heart and seeing if you desire to receive his love. It's God's love for you, not your love for him that allows you to live in relationship with Jesus. It's Jesus' life, not yours. Jesus' death, not yours. Jesus' resurrection, not yours, that allows you to have a vital faith that is eternal. It's your belief in those realities, your trust, your surrender that allows you to live in a right relationship with God. If you've never received the love of God and stepped into that relationship, you can today through faith. And through prayer, you can open up your heart and say, Jesus, I need you. If you will love me, like that screen said, Jesus, I need you. If you need to make that decision today, you can just pray along with me in your heart. You don't have to pray out loud. Just just pray something like this, Jesus, I need you in my life. You can repeat after me from your heart to heaven, Jesus, I need you. Forgive me of my sin. Cleanse me of my past. Heal me of my hurt and lead me to be who you created me to be. Today by faith, which means I don't understand it all, but I'm willing to trust. I surrender my life to your leadership and I ask for your salvation. Today I want to become a follower of Jesus. If you just prayed that prayer with me here or online in just a second, Pastor Scott will be back up to tell you how you can connect with us so we can give you some resources, pray with you, answer any questions you might have as you begin your new walk with Jesus. But before we say amen, Christians, those of you who have grown up in church, you remember the song, right? All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him so that in his presence I might daily live. Christians, what is God calling you to surrender so you might learn trust so that you might live in the presence of God every day for the rest of your life? If you can figure that out today and take that step, it's been a great day in your faith journey. Tell God, I surrender. Ask God to help you trust and get ready to walk with God in a way you've never walked before. Developing an intimacy that's not been there before surrender. God, thank you for Jesus. He is our beautiful Savior that takes a broken, ugly, selfish, greedy heart that breaks our eyes and our hands and our spirits and our religion. just breaks everything. And Lord, he redeems it and he makes it brand new.
I pray you'll do that for the people of our church. And Lord, I pray for the body of believers around the world that our hearts might be so surrendered to Jesus and our trust grows so deep with Jesus that our walk with Jesus would be so intimate that people look at us and say, if that's what it means to follow Jesus, I want that. I pray for husbands and wives in our church looking at their marriage, not trying to figure out, does my spouse love me the way Jesus loves me, but do I love my spouse the way Jesus loves me? God, break our hearts to do better, to be more like Jesus. And as you do that, strengthen our marriages so we may be a picture of the gospel to our world. We cannot do it without you. But God, with you, we're willing to face anything. So we pray you'd walk with us as we move forward. And we ask these things today in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen.